Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to New Books in Eastern European Studies. My name is Jelena Golubovic and today I am speaking with Alma Yeftic about her new book, Social Aspects of Memory, Stories of Victims and Perpetrators from Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, this book just came out this year, 2019, from Rutledge. And Alma, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hello and thank you for inviting me. So I'll open with our traditional first question, which is to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, as I said, I'm Alma Yevtic. I am originally from Bosnia-Herzegovina. I'm currently finalizing my PhD in psychology at the University of Belgrade. Uh, I used to work as a visiting uh, researcher at uh, the School of Psychology, University of Sussex, and the Center for Southeast European Studies, University of Graz. Um, I'm currently working on um, uh, my on my new project, uh, which is related to peace education. But also, I'm uh, mostly uh, involved into uh, um, projects related to uh, southeastern Europe and uh, basically reconciliation and how to organize models of reconciliation in post-conflict uh, areas. Great. So you you open the book with a chapter called Sarajevo for Beginners, where you uh, talk about the 1984 Winter Olympics and you use the Olympics to describe uh, what happens to shared memories when a city becomes divided. I thought this was a really great uh, and kind of a novel introduction into Sarajevo. So I'd love if you could open the interview that way as well, explain for listeners the, the division of Sarajevo and East Sarajevo during the war uh, through these commemorations of the 1984 Winter Olympics? Yes, well, at the beginning, I would like to say that the concept of a divided city is quite debatable because East Sarajevo was formed during the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina under the name Srpsko Sarajevo. Uh, The territory includes the suburban municipalities of uh, what was once pre-war Sarajevo. So accordingly, the term divided city cannot be used specifically from the point of view of uh, Sarajevo citizens 
who didn't consider the municipalities of contemporary East Sarajevo to be part of the city even before the war or to be called, let's say, urban. And uh, when I started this research, I was really like um, concerned about um, uh, that idea of uh, rural-urban difference and basically how it can be something that we call in psychology confounding variable. So that very variable that can influence my further research into readiness for reconciliation. Uh, in terms of these Winter Olympics, uh, as you saw, I actually mentioned them because uh, that was one of the historical moments uh, very important for Sarajevo as a city, even uh, not only as uh, one of the European capitals, but also it uh, attracted the attention of the whole uh, of the world. Uh, so, as you know, Sarajevo got the privilege of hosting the 1984 Winter Olympics, a period that was marked by the deepening of the economic crisis and the rivalries between the republics in Yugoslavia. And that was like very well described by Nicholas Moll in one of his articles related to Winter Olympics. Uh, but what was also interesting is that during the 1992-95 war, um, the also uh, areas of Olympic sites around the city of Sarajevo were directly affected especially Igman and Bialashica mountains, where skiing competitions uh, had been held, as well as Trebevich mountain, where the bobsled run was organized. So those areas were actually direct combat zones, uh, while Mount Yahorina, uh, the former venue of, Alp, uh, of skiing for women, was behind the siege line and under the control of the Army of Republic of Srpska. So several Olympic sites in the city of Sarajevo were shelled and destroyed, including the Olympic Museum and the Zetra Sports Center building. Uh, also, images of 1984 and of the same sites during siege were regularly used to appeal for the solidarity of the international public. For example, the music video Help Bosnia Now by the Sarajevo pop group Aid in 1992 was recorded in the destroyed Zetra building, and that served as a postcard uh, from Sarajevo. So also... Uh, when it comes to these uh, commemorations of the 1984 Olympics, uh, I would mention like the year 1994, which was especially significant because uh, that was the 10th anniversary, uh, and it was organized within the besieged city of Sarajevo, and it seemed as if people understood it as two different occasions when Sarajevo was the center of the world. Uh, however, while like on the first occasion during the Olympics, Sarajevo was a popular and well-known center, while on the second occasion, war and siege, uh, the world somehow turned its head away from Sarajevo. Uh, the 10th anniversary was um, very actively commemorated in Sarajevo, despite the war, and the special organizing committee for the celebration uh, was established under the presidency of the mayor of Sarajevo and with the participants of the new Olympic Committee of Bosnia and Herzegovina and the support of the government of Bosnia and Herzegovina as well. So somehow, you know, people were trying to deal uh, with uh, that moment, regardless of siege and shelling and what they were actually going through. So it was organized like under the motto of the flame is still alive, while a moment of silence uh, was uh, held in a Lillehammer during the opening ceremony of the Winter Olympics in 1994. Uh, however, on the other side of the siege line, the 10th anniversary of the Sarajevo Winter Olympics was also marked, so in East Sarajevo. After, uh, so Republic of Srpska, after its establishment in 1992, created its own Olympic Committee, uh, which in February 1994 organized the anniversary of the 1984 Games on Yahorina. 
uh, in the form of three-day event entitled Olympic Date. So it was opened by Momchilo Krajishnik, president of the Republic of Srpska Assembly at that time. Uh, so those two anniversaries were organized in two divided by parallel words, and the year 1994 showed that the 1984 Sarajevo Winter Olympics had become a divided site of memory, equally presented in both Sarajevo and East Sarajevo. So the total division of the Olympic heritage continued during the war, but also influenced post-war anniversaries that occurred in 1999, 2004, 2009. Since we don't have too much time, I won't be like dealing with the <clears throat> details. But I can tell that in 1999, a very modest anniversary was organized in the Federation Bosnia and Herzegovina, where the Republic of Srpska didn't organize any kind of event, as in that period, they were all very much focused on Kosovo crisis. Uh, however, mm -hmm. in 2004, the Republic of Srpska and the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina agreed to unite and to organize the first post-war joint anniversary. And that was also some sort of beginning of negotiations over the organization of the European Youth Olympic Festival. And in, 19, in 2011, sorry, the European Olympic Committee granted the organization of the 2017 European Youth mm -hmm. Olympic Festival to both the municipalities of Sarajevo and East Sarajevo. Uh, and um, that was uh, when one of the most important, actually, events during the anniversary organized in 2014 was a gala event in Zetra with Jane Torville and Christopher Dean, who returned to Sarajevo for the first time since they had won the gold medal in ice dancing in 1984. So it was one very nice anniversary, actually, with the uh, previous winners. So, uh, and their and their visit was also co-organized by both municipalities of Sarajevo and East Sarajevo. So that somehow presented also the joint effort. Uh, and in 2017, both sides engaged in the joint activities in order to make all necessary preparations for the European Youth Olympics. And basically that um, initiative and also those Olympics were something that, at least for the time being, united both municipalities and somehow, you know, uh, make them cooperate uh, during the organization of such an important event. Uh, so um, basically, um, uh, we can say that um, that's some sort of a most positive association between the two cities after the war. And it actually resulted in something that uh, sparked the attention of the, of the whole Europe, but also world. And they also send such a nice message to the world. So uh, regardless of what was going on in media and what was going on behind and all the struggles that they went through during that process, they managed to organize a great event. So somehow Olympics were shown to be something and sport as something that uh, united those two parts again. Great. I found that was such a, uh, a good introduction to to the book and it's a very novel way to go into um, what happened in Sarajevo during the war and how it's remembered by different sides and using this this sort of uh, beautiful shared event of the Winter Olympics. So the rest of the book deals with um, the results of a psychological study with two generations in Sarajevo and East Sarajevo, so the pre-war and post-war generations, um, where they're asked to discuss for uh, more contentious events, so for wartime events, um, and and you're analyzing how they remember them differently and engage with them differently. So for the listeners, could you just uh, quickly introduce what these four events that you 
studied are, um, for people that might be unfamiliar with the siege of Sarajevo. And then um, just tell us what sort of indicators did you analyze? Uh, yes. Uh, remember when you asked me basically how did I start writing this book? Is it basically related mostly to this question? Uh, when I wanted to study uh, how traumatic memories were formed, uh, I wanted actually to see the perspective, both perspectives, perspective of victim and perspective of the perpetrator. However, when you start analyzing the events that happened during the war here, uh, you could see that basically, you know, uh, there were so many factors involved. Uh, that uh, in some of the cases, it was really hard for me to uh, somehow follow the, all the narratives and the stories behind. Therefore, I decided not to take any sort of historical narrative or historical fact as a correct one and to listen to the stories uh, of people, both Bosniaks and Serbs from both Sarajevo and East Sarajevo, and to see how they uh, remember what has happened to them or how younger generations uh can explain what happened even though they were not born during that period time period and they don't really have a uh, lived experience of war and siege of Sarajevo. Uh, so basically, uh, I decided to choose the events uh, in which we can say um, those positions of victim and perpetrator are somehow intertwined. So, first of all, since this is a psychological study, the events were chosen in accordance with the manifestations and influence characteristics of a major event that were given by Nancy Dagnut, uh, Israeli researcher, and the number of commemorations also organized each year. So, um, basically, I was trying to find uh, four events, two of which um, will be related to Bosniaks as victims and two of which will be related to Serbs as victims in those events. But however, during the research, you will see that those victim-perpetrator lines are quite blurred. And uh, you will see that uh, in under people's understanding of who is the victim, who is the perpetrator, defend, uh, belongs to several factors, not only uh, pure understanding of historical facts. So uh, with events that I chose, uh, our massacre in Vasemiskina Street, uh, which is basically also known uh, as Sarajevo massacre in the Brad Quail. And that was the first artillery attack during the siege of Sarajevo carried out by Bosnian Serb forces on 27th May 2000, uh, 1992. It's considered one of the most horrific crimes and it has been commemorated ever since. Uh, then uh, Markele massacres. Uh, were two bombardments carried out by the Army of Republic of Srpska targeting civilians at the Markele uh, marketplace, located in the historic core of Sarajevo. The first one occurred in 1994 and the second one in 1995. The latter attack was the stated reason, actually, for NATO's airstrike strikes against Bosnian Serb forces, which were supposed to lead to the Dayton Peace uh, Agreement uh, and the end of war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Commemorations of both massacres have been organized on a yearly basis in Sarajevo. Then the third event was killings of Serbs in Kazani at Trebevich Mountain. So between 1992 and 1993, Serbs from Sarajevo were taken against their will to Trebevich, the mountain above Sarajevo, by Bosniak members of the Bosnian army and killed. The exact uh, number of victims has been under discussion and Kazani is the only documented case of uh, the suffering of Serbs from Sarajevo until now. And NATO airstrikes against Bosnian Serb forces happened after the second Markele massacre, 1995, and were intended to lead to the end of the siege of Sarajevo and the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So uh, regardless of the fact that 
those were not Bosniaks who were direct perpetrators uh, in that event. Uh, it was chosen basically because uh, Serbian forces in Serbian regions uh, were actually bombarded, and that was some sort of response to uh, Markale attacks. So somehow that combination is slightly blurred, but how somehow you know it gives us the impression of uh, suffering of Serbs also during the war, if it can be called that way. Because today, if you see the literature, you will see different types of uh, explanations of NATO bombing. In some cases, it is called military interventions. In some cases, it's called aggression of NATO. In some cases, it's called war between NATO and Ser- Republic of Serbska, war between NATO and Serbia, etc. So I didn't want to deal with those historical facts and what was written in historical textbooks. I really wanted ordinary people, un- underrepresented uh, members of the community to tell me what they think, what they know, and how they memorize it. Uh, Could you speak a bit to the question of the generational difference in the two cities? Uh, So you talked to the pre-war and the post-war generations in both. What did you want to discover about how generations remember and what did you find? Yeah, I chose two generational cohorts of participants uh, in order to explore some sort of transgenerational transmission of traumatic memories because transgenerational transmission of trauma has been explored previously, especially in children of Holocaust survivors. However, this research uh, didn't explore the direct transgenerational transmission from parent to child, uh, but slightly indirect transmission, because I had two generational cohorts that represent groups of people of different ages, but born in the same area, such that one group survived the war and the other was born after the war. So basically, that second generation were not like children of uh, my participants coming from the first generation, but those were children basically born in Sarajevo and East Sarajevo after the war. So uh, at the moment of uh, fieldwork, during the fieldwork, actually, they were around between 15 and 20 years of age. So basically, they were still like uh, either in uh, high school or first year of university. Uh, and my point was to analyze how the social context and media together influence the memories of the younger generation. Uh, as well as to establish them some sort of foundations for my future remembrance for peace project and this like uh, memory memory pedagogy if it can be called that way. So basically, I wanted to see if there were any differences in how these events were memorized by the first generation, but also how those events were retold, transmitted to the second generation. Also, I wanted to find out how other factors such as media, school, internet, museums can influence the narratives of second generation. What did I uh, find out is also a very broad question in that sense, but uh, it seems as older generation was more ready to reconcile than the youngsters, which can be ascribed to their experience of, uh, let's say, Yugoslav brotherhood and unity, because they lived uh, in that period when actually all the countries were united and they felt that uh, some sort of sense of... uh, power in in that uh, case. However, younger generation didn't show to have exact knowledge of these events, uh, but they had some sort of knowledge of war in general. But when you ask about specific events, they sometimes struggled to basically uh, remember, to to basically produce what they know about those events. And their knowledge was mostly influenced by media and internet. And that is also due to the fact that they don't learn about 1992-1995 war in schools. Uh, it's also important that um, bias in memories, as I mentioned it before, for in-group wrongdoings uh, was analyzed in terms of comparison of narratives, 
while, as I said, historical facts were not taken into consideration. So basically, even if you ask me, you know, about uh, these events, uh, I would rather tell you to Google them than uh, I would like be ready to describe what I actually mean, what happened or what my participants said that really happened. So I was somehow trying to find out whether they would be some, uh, let's say, uh, narratives that will uh, arise as collective memories for each uh, ethnic group. So whether there would be like some sort of similarities in memories that could form uh, collective memories for that specific ethnic group, either for Bosniaks in Sarajevo, Serbs in East Sarajevo, or Serbs in Sarajevo, which was also a very interesting group. And uh, so apart from this qual quantitative research that I conducted, I also did this qualitative research of narratives, uh, which I got from both generational cohorts. And what I discovered was also very frequent, uh, but that one word was very frequently mentioned, that that was the word Chemer, which in Bosnian, Serbian, Croatian, actually corresponds to a combination of several emotions and feelings, like sadness, sorrow, bitterness, despondency, and grief. So it sometimes exists, or even in the poetry, in order to describe that uh, state of emptiness. So basically, it seems like that was especially the case for the first generation, that people felt somehow empty, emotionally empty after the war. And even now, they actually struggle for their existence, but they also struggle to find some sort of a meaning in the place in which they uh, ended up. Because after the borders were made and everything else, you know, some people feel somehow, you know, out of that world. So um, also, uh, it was evident, I think you also found it in the book, that uh, some of the elements of individual narratives in both groups were common to the members of the same ethnic group. And that uh, supports the way um, of the formation of what I called floating narrative. So narrative that, I char that uh, characterize members of a particular group and that they somehow and that uh, represent all these elements that members of one group share together. So, for instance, there were some elements in common in the explanations provided for Markale and or Kazani, as well as Vase Miskina and or NATO bombing. Uh, and it seems if these groups are somehow floating on such stories. So the most important question is whether and how it is possible to change the direction of such flow and how these groups meet and possibly listen to the other stories that are floating around them. So they use that allegory of the floating narrative to show basically how these groups differ and what should be done to make them like come closer to each other. One of my uh, favorite parts of the book that I found really interesting, um, you had some uh, interesting results about how Serbs who spent the war under siege in Sarajevo remember, um, as opposed to, to Bosniaks who spent the war under siege or as opposed to Serbs who spent the war in East Sarajevo. Um, can you talk a bit about how this cohort remembered the war? Uh, yes, actually, when I started this research, I was really interested in uh, whether there would be some sort of differences among a group of Serbs who spent the war in Sarajevo and those who spent the war uh, in East Sarajevo, because what they share is their ethnicity, but geographically they were divided. So when com comparing the responses of Serbs from Sarajevo and Serbs from East Sarajevo in uh, first generation, I realized that in almost all cases there is a no similarity in response and association related to the same ethnicity, as I basically was expecting to get. On the contrary, Serbs from Sarajevo didn't show similarities with Bosniaks as well, uh, which could have been expected based on the fact that they spent the war together in the same city. 
However, it seems that Serbs from Sarajevo developed their own narrative that resembles neither Bosniak's narrative nor other Serbs' narrative, but their own narrative of the war. So the similar case was with the second generation. Therefore, the similarity with Bosniaks uh, expected due to the geographic proximity was not found, as well as similarity with Serbs from East Sarajevo due to the same ethnicity. So somehow it happened that Serbs who spent the war in Sarajevo uh, developed their own narrative and their own opinion and their own memories of what has happened. And uh, somehow, you know, that was uh, the hardest group for me to reach because uh, there was there we, there were not so, so many Serbs in Sarajevo at the moment who basically continued living in Sarajevo after the war. And also when I was approaching them, it was really hard to um, somehow get their stories because at the very beginning they were extremely suspicious of who I was, what I really wanted uh, to do, where those things would be like uh, published, whether their names would be revealed or not. So basically I always had to have like two or three persons who were acting as some sort of like advocates. So somehow, you know, persuading people to talk to me and trying to convince them that nothing bad uh, could have happened uh, at the end. So uh, basically, I had the problems of finding the sample on all sides, but somehow Serbs from Sarajevo were uh, somehow, in that sense, the most vulnerable uh, group. And somehow I realized that there was some sort of... Uh, atmosphere of fear around them and their narrative, as if they were like um, measuring how much they were supposed to say and how much uh, they were actually uh, allowed to say. So basically, you know, that's, uh, that, that like narrative that I got was uh, of real interest. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, yeah, I know lots of researchers in Sarajevo have had a hard time accessing the Serb community because there is so much suspicion and fear when it comes to, to describing the war. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. I'd like to jump to something you mentioned in passing, which is that for the, the post-war generation, um, they're getting, they're not getting the story of the war from their direct experience, but they're getting it through media, through uh, the internet and um, through education, or I guess more often they're not getting it through their educations. Can you talk a bit about what the history curriculum looks like in Bosnia and how it affects how the post-war generation has access to and understands the war? Yes, it's also another uh, issue that we have here. So um, one of the most important factors to me was actually that the younger generation doesn't learn about the 1992-1995 war in schools 
because it's forbidden to talk about this uh, until a common narrative has been established. So history teaching in elementary and secondary schools in Bosnia-Herzegovina has not yet been agreed upon and has been carried out using three different curricula. So we have curricula of two entities, the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Republic of Srpska, and the Croatian curriculum followed in certain parts of Bosnia-Herzegovina. So the 1992 war uh, was not included in the official curriculum in most parts of the country due to the recommendations of the Council of Europe to temporarily suspend teaching about the war years. So uh, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe argued for the temporary suspension of teaching until historians, with the support of international experts, established a common approach to the study of this period in schools. So the Council of Europe also intervened in the case of the curriculum through establishing a committee and proposing the guidelines, but these approaches contributed more to the formation of an intellectual vacuum and the omission of the 1992-5 events from history textbooks. So uh, the guidelines for the evaluation of history textbooks for primary and secondary schools in Bosnia-Herzegovina were adopted in 2003 with the major aim to uh, aim of developing a balanced, comparative, multi-perspective narrative. So the guidelines specify basically the following, the quantity of information related to the political history that should be reduced, the writing of history textbooks, since the modern textbook is expected to educate, encourage, guide, and lead the development of students, and what history textbooks should look like from format to content. However, regardless of the guidelines being there to ensure preparation of identical history textbooks for students, and regardless of the fact that 1992-5 war was supposed to be omitted from these textbooks, in practice this was not the case. So basically, I did a content analysis of three history textbooks used in the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the Republic of Srpska, and the areas of Bosnia and Herzegovina that followed the Croatian curriculum. And it revealed that 1992-5 war was mentioned and they described in the Croatian textbook, for instance, while it was omitted in the other two. However, my detailed analysis revealed that in the preface of textbook used in the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, the war was mentioned. So they basically said, like, uh, at the end of the preface, they said it's particularly important to know that uh, in this period of 1992-1995, an independent state of Bosnia and Herzegovina was established mm-hmm. after a long and terrible war which was led against it by all means. However, a textbook used in the Republic of Srpska contains interesting instruction for students' readers at the end of the chapter titled Yugoslavia after the World War II. So it says, you can be informed of the events of our nearest past after 1991 on the basis of interviews with contemporaries, teachers, parents, participants in the events, as well as from other sources like newspapers, documents, photographs, documentaries. Information can be discussed during history classes and tutorials. So you see, they basically invited them to come with the data and then to discuss it during the classes, regardless of uh, uh, propositions made by Council of Europe. So that analysis implies like why school was not mentioned as a source of information um, about the war uh, in during my research. Actually, it was mentioned only once. So even younger generation never mentioned school as a source of information. Uh, of the war, and they also, you know, were not that eager to even describe whether or not their teachers were telling them about it, but also they were not that much eager to say whether or not their parents were telling them about it. However, one student said that he heard about Markle event from his professor, so we cannot be sure, you know, whether the guidelines are followed in the classes 
and that professor really use the proposed textbooks or other sources as well, because we cannot be sure that professors are really uh, eager to use the textbooks that are analyzed, that were proposed, but basically maybe they use some other sources or they give their own uh, tutorials in their own way. However, currently we have this uh, EuroCleo project, which is one of the initiatives trying to empower history teachers to talk about the difficult past with their students. So uh, basically they are trying to give them the materials and to teach them how to talk about these topics that are controversial. And now they started giving them also tutorials and information on how to teach about the last war. So basically, according to EuroCleo, the biggest power of history teachers is not to teach their students the number uh, of people killed and murdered, but to teach the students why such events should never happen again. So basically, I think that is something that um, basically we should all uh, concentrate on, how to reorganize history teaching in order to uh, give students knowledge of why those things are bad and why they should never happen again, and not just to give them the, like, the pure facts, because from the pure facts, they cannot actually have some sort of pedagogical message of what we are supposed to do in the future in order to prevent those cases. Mm-hmm. And it's always such a, a numbers game where one side has different numbers from the other, and then that becomes the the point of argumentation instead of just sort of learning the lesson of history. That's really fascinating that the the history textbooks were directing them to talk to their parents and grandparents as a sort of living living sources of history. That's really great. Yeah, that's also one of the cases where basically they give them open hands to do whatever they want, to ask whoever they want, and then to bring those memories, you know, to the classroom and discuss it, you know, which would be actually interesting in cases when those classes uh, are not like divided, because today even the classrooms are not uh, that much ethnically mixed. Okay, in Sarajevo, we do have like children of different ethnicities attending the same school and sitting in the same chair. in the same classroom. However, it is still, you know, the case of uh, majority and minority. So basically, it would be interesting, like, to mix them in order to see what's going to happen then, how they were planning to discuss it, and how to organize that discussion in order for them to learn something else. Um, so I want to ask you about the question of commemoration, which has sort of been uh, mentioned a few times in our conversation. So you point out in your book that commemorative uh, activities can sometimes prevent societies from moving forward. And you ask us some important questions. You ask, um, how much should we remember and how can we remember difficult pasts in a way that encourages some sort of reconciliation or a, a understanding of the other? Um, I know this is a massive question, but what did you learn about it from how the participants of the study responded to questions such as whether we should commemorate this event or that event? Yeah, indeed, it's such a massive question, but actually extremely important part of this book. Uh, I truly believe that I didn't even cover it enough in this book because uh, that would be part of my future research. And somehow, you know, I just wanted to open up discussion uh, in this book and then to, you know, develop it further later. But, uh, you know, in book, I sometimes I refer to Proust um, and his books once way because I, I somehow you know when you mention when someone says says memory you know it reminds me of Proust and basically uh, when he warned the reader of the paradox of seeking in reality the pictures that are stored in one's memory so whether we can actually find the reality in the memory or not you know how much of our memories are 
uh, distorted to correspond to our present situation, our in-group belonging, expectations, wishes, desires. So, you know, I was trying to somehow understand, you know, what happens after one eats the Proustian Madeleine. So what happens basically uh, when we are confronted uh, with the commemoration and when we find ourselves in, in certain commemora- as participants in certain commemoration, when we watch it on TV or when we are like standing in front of memorial. So uh, what, what happens? So, um, you know, it was really uh, interesting for me to also go through these explanations of uh, why we should commemorate or why we shouldn't commemorate uh, provided by my participants, you know. So I remember that one participant told me, like, oh, yes, we should start commemorating the days of the NATO bombing of the Republic of Srpska. So, and I was thinking, you know, that person was Bosniak, and I was, like, thinking, okay, like, tell us why. You really want, you know, uh, to, you really want people to see that also, you know, some civilians died during the NATO bombing, even though it was military intervention, or what was the purpose, you know, of commemoration. And then the person said, like, it's important to show all Serbs what could happen to them if they try to attack us again. So basically, in that case, the person was somehow uh, imposing commemoration in order to warn. And the purpose of that commemoration would not be to learn from the history, but basically to warn people, you know, you should never attack us again. Look at what's going to happen to you. But, uh, you know, uh, in most of the cases, you know, and the, uh, the main question that memory scholars are trying to answer is, how can we remember the traumatic and difficult past in a way that won't turn us into its prisoners, who won't be ready to reconcile and cooperate with the members of the other group? So, you know, that's what we call like dangerous memories. So are those that recognize the heterogeneity of the historical narratives and as such can significantly affect the willingness for reconciliation. So uh, what becomes an official memory reflects the power of certain group and ideologies in society to define the past according to their own interests. That is what we are having now, of course. So each memory can become dangerous when it resists the prevailing like historical narrative. But today in Bosnia, we have different historical narratives around. So we also have different types of commemorations to different events. You know? So um, as such, it hinders reconciliation, since like each party wants to remember only their own pain and suffering during the traumatic event, and to build a group identity based on the common suffering. So in that way, memories become a source of hostility, hatred, and violence across the, uh, that are transmitted across generations. So, I mean, uh, in David Reef's words, if we can put it that way, you know, our inability to forget can be actively dangerous, such as in the cases of Ireland, United States, Australia, and many others, where historical memory was sliced into slogans, battle cries, and ideology. So, you know, uh, David Reeve wrote that controversial book called Against Remembrance. So he's somehow trying to see how much we should remember, how much we should forget in order for all of us to live peacefully in this world. So some, uh, some level of forgetting can be desirable in order to control the level of empathy towards victims, uh, what I call like a surplus of empathy towards the victim group that can be harmful towards, for instance, younger generations that belong to the perpetrator group. Too much forgetting can lead to total erasure of the past. So one of the examples is also Rwanda. It becomes some sort of, um, it presents some sort of modified forgetting, which is applied for the sake of peaceful coexistence between members of the victim and perpetrator groups. So uh, while large numbers of Hutu convicted um, or suspected of uh, involvement in 1994 genocide have returned to their communities after being released from prisons and therefore had nowhere else to go, 
but to live together alongside the survivors of the genocide they had committed. Both groups chose to deliberately forget certain facts and details from the difficult past, which is also a controversial fact, because what does it mean when we forget? You know, Does it mean that we forgive, or does it mean something else? So basically, uh, whether we should actually choose to forget something, whether this chosen amnesia is good or not, is another question. So uh, similar things were actually discovered in Sierra Leone, So, uh, and that was a response to the work of the Truth Reconciliation Commission, which proposed that directed forgetting. Uh, I also follow the work of uh, Janine Natalia Clark, who actually says that the major issue in post-conflict societies such as Rwanda and Croatia uh, is not whether the past is remembered or forgotten, uh, as these are two symbiotic and mutually reinforcing processes. Um, that is certainly the case because forgetting as much as remembering is part of the reconstruction of history. Therefore, the major issue is what exactly is remembered and what exactly is forgotten. So just as remembrance is under the influence of politics, memorials and commemorations will be under the same influence too, which we have now in Bosnia as well. So while there is a common belief that one can le learn from the past only by remembering uh, and that only by learning from the past we can try to ensure that, that history is not replayed, the never again rhetoric still provides like an open floor for debates on memorials and commemorations. That is something that also Clark discusses in her work. Uh, so um, it is also, you know, important for people to memorize the traumatic events, but more important is how they deal with those memories and what they learned uh, from those memories. Uh, so whether they're just like fabricating those memories or they are actually using them uh, uh, in order to learn younger generations of horrifying events that happened in the past and why those events should never happen again. So, you know, in terms of commemorations, you know, uh, that is also one thing with humanities, you know, and social science. This is not physics, so we cannot simply, you know, talk about the structure of atom and then or molecule and then simply, you know, decide on the formulas and the best formulas which could be used in order to keep uh, all those items together, you know. Here we have so, so many different items and so, so many floating narratives around us and it's really, really hard to find, you know, connecting lines between them. Uh, however, what I like... Um, uh, discovered through my research is that um, there are several features that characterize the narratives of Sarajevans and East Sarajevans, and those are like omitting parts of the past, distortion of the past, and the need to preserve the past, either in its original or modified form. So due to the presence of different discourses on the past, but also different kinds of silence about the past, memorials and memorialization in Bosnia still remain divisive for political issue, not a place to meet and talk about past. So uh, I would rather talk about the establishment of remembrance for peace through a pedagogy of memorials and commemorations in contemporary Bosnia, even though it is not an easy task. So in a similar way, discussing the possibility of erecting joint memorials in Sarajevo, East Sarajevo and other towns still remains a sort of taboo here. Uh, however, reconciliation is a longer process and includes that, that includes lots of effort. It includes a lot of cognitive restructuring. We do not always think of ourselves as those who either deliberately or intentionally interpret the past in a certain way, just as we do not think of ourselves doing something with little or no forethought. So there are ways and methods of how to be vigilant and teach ourselves how to spot and prevent different types of biases and distortions. So that's a long-term process and we all know that. But change can be established through the educational system and promotion of what I called 
remembrance for peace or so-called peace education, uh, in which I actually see the future for new generations and for, for young generations in Bosnia and in the Balkans, uh, or let's say in this like ex-Yugoslav space. That's really fascinating that your uh, participants saw commemorations as a way to to warn the other side what not to repeat. And uh, I think often commemorations, we, I mean, we always think of them in this in this nice way as providing some sense of closure to victims or some sense of of marking the past and a little bit of justice even. But yeah, it can be a warning. It can be a way of shaming the other side um, and. A different one of your participants was saying that in Sarajevo, we commemorate as a way of spreading hatred, and therefore we shouldn't commemorate anything until we know how to until we know how to do it properly. Um, so the the final chapter of your book, you talk about the the War Childhood Museum, which I guess is an example of a kind of joint commemoration and a, a sort of safe space for people to remember the past together. Um, could you expand a bit on this museum and how it it can promote the sort of remembrance for peace? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, it's a newly opened museum in Sarajevo, but it has already sparked so much attention of not only uh, Bosnians, but also Europeans and the whole world. Uh, it actually tries to preserve the memories of uh, people who were children during the war, uh, by somehow keeping and preserving their like toys and the personal belonging uh, together with the stories related to those uh, items. Uh, they also have uh, video recordings of uh, narratives of uh, people who were children during the war uh, that uh, who actually try to explain uh, what happened to them and what they went through. So it's one very, very emotional place uh, where people can learn uh, and study war in peace while being surrounded by, let's say, like uh, children's stories, even though those people who told them or those people who actually donated their personal belonging to the museums are not children anymore, but somehow, you know, the stories that they gave uh, were stories of those little children uh, who were uh, here in Bosnia during the war. Uh, now they're collecting also objects and uh, personal belongings and also uh, video statements of. Uh, people from all around the world, so also Ukraine and uh, Syria as well. So that will be like expanded uh, museum. Uh, but what I mostly like wanted, what I mostly liked about the museum is basically that it somehow uh, doesn't only endorse this emotional empathy, as we call it in psychology, that would be like understanding, you know, the, the feelings of other person and that somehow, you know, affective component of empathy. But also this Cognitive empathy. And cognitive empathy is what we call perspective taking. So that's our ability to step into the shoes of other person and to try to see the world through the eyes of that person. I remember when I even started doing these interviews, I realized that somehow, you know, my own narrative of war and my own traumatic memories were, you know, all around me. And sometimes I was overwhelmed, not just by uh, narratives of people, of my participants, but also I was overwhelmed by my own narratives and my own traumas, because I also survived the war in Bosnia. So somehow it was not very easy for me to remain neutral. But I discovered that only uh, my neutral face can help my uh, participants and can somehow provide, like, let's say, a safe space for them where they can talk. And somehow it helped them 
discover their own memories and discover something that they didn't even know maybe before. So uh, in one case, for instance, I had participants participants who told me like about Markale event. That was all set up. That was staged by Bosniaks. And then I said like, okay, how do you hear about it? He said like, uh, I know that they were like dead bodies, but those were not dead bodies. Those were plastic dolls covered by red uh, color. And then I said like, of course, but did you see it on TV or how did you hear about it? Then he said like, I heard from my friend who lost leg during Markale attack. And then I was like, okay, it was staged. Those were plastic dolls. Now you're talking about your friend who lost leg there. How come? And then he said, like, you know, I'm aware of different narratives that exist there. But sometimes it's important, you know, for me to choose one. And you choose one based on where you are and where you belong to. Because in Bosnia now, people mostly struggle for their own existence. And somehow having your own floating narrative means that you are like, that you want, uh, that, that you will be floating, that you will be swimming in the sea. If you're not swimming, you will die, you know. So somehow I realized that providing the safe space can help people help people open up, can help people talk. And that is also what I felt while in War Childhood Museum, where they don't talk about who did what, how it was done, who was who. It's not even important who was who and to which group he or she belonged. But it was important, actually, story, trauma, and how it actually uh, influenced those who come to see and listen. So uh, somehow it serves as a good example because, you know, unlike other war museums, it documents the experiences of those who were not directly engaged in the war, but still suffered multiple consequences because children were not in the army. They were not soldiers in most of the cases, at least not in Bosnia, at least not if they were below 16 or 17. So their stories are like uh, children's stories. So um, basically, you know, um, those stories are particularly important because they have specific potential to de develop and provoke empathy, and that further leads to mutual understanding, which is essential for the reconciliation. So this museum can be used as a case study to understand uh, the schema that proposes development of empathy and something that is called historical consciousness in younger generations through their exposure to materials that require perspective taking. So it provides a safe space for meeting of different perspectives knowledge, complex histories and values. So visitors are placed in close proximity to real children's experiences, and the museum opens up various realities and perspectives around visitors themselves. So at the moment, the current collection includes um, stories from children from different geographic areas. It will come to an authentic dialogue with that other, one that is very distant and different, but at the same time divides our space. So in this way, the museum, the World Childhood Museum possesses a challenge to prejudice and stereotypes and increases the empathy of visitors. So somehow it retains information in a form of story, and that is very important because uh, with the, it's also some sort of uh, emotionally, emotional charge uh, which help us understand, which help us take that perspective of other. So uh, I, I, I mean... I, I haven't done any like further research into how actually participants can be affected by um, War Childhood Museum at this point, but that is something like that is part of my uh, future research because I am planning to deal with the peace museums around the world. Uh, however, like um, some some of the things there were like 
actually fascinating to me because uh, I went there also as a war survivor. And uh, at some point, I also brought a group of my students there because at that time I was teaching psychology at the International University of Sarajevo. And my students were coming from different parts of the world and um, they, they were not war survivors, but I found some of them crying at the end. And then I felt like whether it was a really good decision to bring them there. Yeah. And at the end, they were basically like thankful. And they told me like that they really appreciated the fact that I brought them there and that I gave them the some sort of impression of what happened during the war. So basically that told them more than any historic textbook. And that's what I actually appreciate about this museum. Yeah, it comes back right to what you were saying at the beginning about how uh, you can present the war as facts and figures and dates and numbers, or you can talk to sort so-called ordinary people about their stories and about what they actually went through. And that can have much more of an impact on, on creating a sense of empathy. And I, I visited this uh, museum when I was in Sarajevo. What I really loved about it was they give you a pair of headphones and each little blurb it's written on the wall, but it's also um, there's a recording of someone saying it out loud. And I don't know if it's the actual person who donated the object. I'm assuming it's probably not, but there's something about having that human voice telling you this short anecdote about the object and how uh, and what experience they had with this object in the war that just made it so personal and uh, yeah, really a place for, for connecting. Yeah. And especially because it somehow shows you the banality of all wars that are, that happened or that are currently happening in the world and how basically, you know, uh, it's all unimportant and how the only important things are human lives, especially, you know, lives of children. Well, thank you so much for, for all your great answers to these questions. I would like to ask you our traditional final question. And uh, you alluded to this a little bit before we hit record. So I'm excited to hear more. What are you working on next? <laughs> So that's also a very massive question, but uh, at the moment, like I am in transition period because, um, as I said before, uh, I was teaching psychology in Sarajevo at the International University of Sarajevo for eight years. Then uh, I was also a researcher in the UK at Sussex University, then in Graz at University of Graz, and now I'm basically moving to Japan to the International Christian University in Tokyo, where I will be a researcher at the Peace Research Institute. And uh, I will be exploring uh, mostly peace museums there and their influence on uh, reconciliation and their influence on visitors coming from all around the world. And I'm mostly interested in also memories of Hiroshima, how they were preserved in museums, uh, basically how they deal with those traumatic memories of the past and whether some of these things related to peace education that is very well explored in Japan and introduced into their teaching curricula can actually be, let's say, transplanted to our teaching curricula in Bosnia-Herzegovina or also in ex-Yugoslav states. So whether we can learn uh, something about from peace education in Japan and whether basically the lessons that they uh, learn there and the lessons that they develop can be useful for us. So trying to see whether there are some sort of comparisons in, uh, in terms of like uh, two societies that somehow struggled uh, during the wars that went through horrible traumas but now one of these societies is actually, you know, dealing extremely well and is very well developed. And basically it's not developed only like as economic power and industrial power and, I don't know, uh, power in 
world power, but is also developed in terms of like educational system and the way how they deal with trauma and the way how they influence like peace, introduce peace education in their schools. So basically that is something like peace museums, peace education in Japan and ways to actually transform the similar or at least like modifying model to Bosnia and Herzegovina because I see my purpose as a researcher not just to produce books because I strongly belong in this Kurt Levin's statement that research that produces nothing but books will never surface. So what I really want is basically to uh, give some sort of social engagement to my research. So I want to produce something that will be useful to the next generation, regardless of how it sounds now. Maybe it won't be something like, I mean, I'm not expecting to do some great achievement, but at least something that will be of some use and that will that will at least a little bit contribute and reconciliation. Beautiful. Well, I look forward to reading this comparative new work in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me and thank you for your time and everything. And to everyone listening, thank you for listening. That was Alma Yeftich talking about her new book uh, out this year, 2019 from Rutledge, Social Aspects of Memory, Stories of Victims and Perpetrators from Bosnia-Herzegovina. Goodbye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.